0: If you will turn in your scriptures to Colossians chapter 1, we'll be in Colossians 1 this morning. The focus of the verse, or the focus will be on verses 13 and 14. That was where I wanted to spend most of my time, and it's interesting how the Lord leads and directs as to what we're going to be saying I was thinking I'm going to be focusing on what's right there in the verse, and then as I was making my way along, along, I end up dealing with the goodness of God. So as we look at the verse and you go, the goodness of God, well, join me in our little adventure this morning. Um, so I'm going to begin reading in Colossians 1, verse 3, and our target verses are verse 13 and 14, but I want to just give us a sense of context as we get to the verses. So Colossians 1, beginning in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruits and increasing even it as it has been doing in you also since the day you first heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the spirit for this reason also since the day we heard of it we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. And then our verses. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness... And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These two verses provide us with a summary of the divine work of redemption. If we memorize these two verses, we can then meditate on this summary of the work of redemption, and other verses that we know will come to mind and will expand these truths to our prophet. And the divine work of redemption is an important truth to understand. All saints know about it by experience as our hearts were regenerated. And then through faith and repentance, we came to know and love our Savior. But experience should grow and mature to better knowledge and understanding, which provides a solid foundation as we live our lives as Christians that enables enables us to stand fast. As Paul wrote these two verses, we can observe that he is also restating his own salvation experience. Turn with me briefly to Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 15 through 18. It's interesting how Scripture informs us from Scripture. And some of these connections, I'm thankful for the, uh, the men who labored on the commentaries to draw these out for us. I thought this was interesting. So we were looking at uh, being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now let's read in Acts 26, 15 through 18, and verse 18 will be our focus here. And this is when Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. And he's talking about the Damascus Road experience. And I said, "'Who are you, Lord?' And the Lord said, "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. "'But get up and stand on your feet.' For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me." So, coming back to our two verses in Colossians, each believer can rightly personalize this summary of redemption. For he rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of my sins. So, the main subject of the sentence in our verse is God. And the action taken by God is twofold. He rescued and he transferred. And the object of this twofold action is the sinner who is moved from his lost state of sin into the kingdom of God. And the new position is specifically called the kingdom of his beloved son. As a result of this rescue and transfer, the object, the sinner, is declared to receive something, something that is stated in two ways: redemption and the forgiveness of sins." And let's briefly consider the action taken by God. First is the idea of rescue. God rescues or delivers from something that is dangerous, evil, or violent. If God is going to rescue, then the sinner must be in a condition of peril that necessitates and requires such rescue. Further, that condition of peril is so severe or significant that the sinner is unable to rescue themselves, thus God takes the action. The second action taken by God is that of being transferred. This indicates a change of situation or place. You could say, I was here, but now I am there. I was in one position or place, and then moved or exchanged from that one position to be in another position. These two actions are important to notice. They are indicative of how God acts. God does not do anything halfway, but is always complete in his actions. God does not merely rescue the sinner from evil and just put him in a state of neutrality. Rather, God truly and fully rescues by delivering the sinner from perdition and moves or exchanges them to a place of complete safety. The peril that defined the state of the sinner has been exchanged for a state or condition without any peril, a state of salvation. As I approached this text, I wanted to select truths that would encourage us in our daily Christian walk. There is so much evil and wickedness in our culture that we will always benefit from a reminder of our great salvation. I was not specifically looking for a text to demonstrate or prove the sovereignty of God in salvation, but here it is. A plain and simple reading of scripture instructs us that God is the first mover Regarding salvation, it is not me making a choice or taking the first step, rather, it is God. I can only respond after I have been first made alive. Our text, along with the rest of Scripture, shows that God had to act to rescue the sinner. And any action on the part of the sinner is done only after God has first done his action. God rescues, God transfers. But why must this be done? Our text provides information about what the sinner is delivered from, namely the domain of darkness. We could also call it the jurisdiction of evil or the rule of spiritual ignorance. The power, rule, or jurisdiction means this place or condition is all-encompassing. It could also be translated as kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Before God took any action, each of us resided in this condition of spiritual ignorance being fully committed to the kingdom of darkness. Because of the fall of Adam, we are all conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, or eternal, and eternal. But God, but God rescued us from the domain of darkness. In your fallen state, were you looking and expecting God to save you? Were you trying and hoping to improve your standing before God? Were you even concerned about God's displeasure of sinners? Absolutely not. We wholeheartedly agreed with Adam, and we were proud members of the domain of darkness. Isaiah says in 32.6, For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, and to speak error against the Lord. And in Psalm 14, one through 3 which Paul also echoes in Romans 1. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Because we loved and embraced our sinful state, We needed to be rescued and delivered by God before any improvement could occur for us. And God did indeed do that and transferred us and moved us to a place of safety. We we were not actors in this process or transaction. We were simply the beneficiaries of the transaction. I'm reading from the New American for the verses that I read today. That translation along with the NIV uses the word rescue. Other versions, like the ESV and New King James Version, use the word, deliver. Both words convey very similar ideas, to free from confinement, violence, or evil, or to liberate or remove. Both words are based on the idea that the object of the action is not able to do the action themselves. They are dependent on another. I am stuck or trapped in the car. I need someone to get me out. I need to be rescued. Several summers ago, my son Steve and I, this story is going to be used a lot. It's interesting how one story has a lot of applications. We were hiking in the backcountry of the Sierras. We were crossing a large field of boulders, person-sized boulders. As I took a step, the boulder under my foot shifted, and I went down. I was face down and had my fully loaded backpack on my back. While I was mostly okay, I was stuck. My pack pressed me down. I couldn't get up. Think of a turtle on its back. I needed to be rescued by someone else. Thankfully, my son did rescue me. That's why I'm here today. The rescue in our verse speaks to the complete hopelessness and darkness and misery in which, prior to God's intervening mercy, we had been wallowing in. And it is in the domain or realm where Satan exercised his usurped jurisdiction over men and women and their hearts, lives, and activities. By Adam's fall, every individual lost communion with God, fell under the wrath and curse of God, and made fully and completely liable to all of the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the eternal undying pains of hell forever and ever. As God rescues us, our passage tells us that he transferred or translated us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Transfer is just to change the situation, to move from one place to the other. While transfer is a simple word, I believe that God has so orchestrated the affairs and history of the people of Colossae that when they heard this letter read to them, they would immediately think of their own history. Back in 223 to 187 BC, Antiochus the Great had transported 2,000 Jewish families from Mesopotamia and Babylon to the region of Colossae. Those Jews prospered, and by the time of the early church, there were over 11,000 Jewish freemen in the region. So when Paul speaks of being transferred to the kingdom of Christ, the people of that area had a very tangible understanding of the meaning of that action of transfer. The first half of verse 13 speaks of the rescue of saints from the kingdom of darkness and transferred as newly redeemed members of the kingdom of God. Think of the amazing and incredible contrast between these two kingdoms. One kingdom is full of darkness and despair, and the other kingdom is light, incomprehensible, full of glory. Isaiah 9-2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then later in forty two sixteen of Isaiah, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know, in paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. Second Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. John Newton said it well, comparing our condition of darkness and light, when he wrote these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So far we have been speaking of the benefits and the results of salvation. We speak of of those who have received a great treasure and are now studying, looking, learning about this treasure and are delighted to share it with others. But what if you have not received that treasure yet? All of this may just be religious talk to make people feel good. For the unbeliever, this verse explains your current spiritual state and the need for salvation through Jesus Christ. It explains a very present reality. Presently, you are a willing member of the domain of darkness. You are spiritually separated from God you are under the power of sin, evil, and the influence of darkness. But what is encouraging about the gospel message in general, and this verse in particular, is that there is another alternative to darkness and sin. It is life in the kingdom of God. If we honestly see our condition in its true state, we recognize that we are sinners before God Almighty. We can do nothing to change our condition or to redeem ourselves. We must look to Christ acknowledge our condition as a sinner, and plead for his mercy. For the unbeliever, this verse is both an invitation and an encouragement to realize the reality of their spiritual condition and the need for a Savior. It is through repentance of sin and trusting in Christ by faith that we can be saved. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today is the day of salvation. I believe that we will benefit from spending more time looking at the kingdom of God the kingdom of his beloved son. I thought it would be interesting to ask chap GPT, that newfangled artificial intelligence, what is the meaning of the kingdom of God? And this is what it told me. The kingdom of God is a central theme in the teachings of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. It refers to the reign or rule of God over all creation, both in the present reality and in the future fulfillment of his purposes. The kingdom of God is not limited to a specific geographical or political territory, but is a spiritual reality that transcends earthly boundaries. That's pretty good for a computer. I think it was taught how to honestly interpret the text. But as students of the Word, we learn that while the phrase, the kingdom of God, is only in the New Testament, we find many, many references to aspects of the kingdom in the Old Testament, Isaiah 47-2, he is the great king over all the earth. Psalm 103-19, his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 145:13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. There is also the relationship of God as king to his covenant people. Before I give a few verses as an example of this, let me briefly make a comment about covenant people. At the most simple level, a covenant is a consent or an agreement between two persons or parties. I'm not going to get into the level that Pastor Steve is teaching. I'm just going to keep it real, real simple. And so in modern terms, we can use the idea of a contract agreement for the idea of covenant. So covenant people are those with whom God has a special or particular relationship. In the Old Testament, God spoke through types and shadows, He was pointing towards something in the future, which we now know is the coming of Christ. With our New Testament understanding, we can easily see what was veiled to the saints in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was God's covenant people. Of all the nations of the world, Israel enjoyed the favor and blessings of God. The occasional Gentile would join them, but the blessings were focused on the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, we learn about election, the people chosen by god in eternity past to be redeemed by christ. so with these brief comments about covenant people, let's just look at a few verses in the old testament. isaiah 41:21, present your case the lord says, bring forward your strong arguments, the king of jacob says. exodus 19:6 calls israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 40.10 looks ahead when it says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. And Isaiah 52.7 looks forward when the proclamation for Zion is understood, Your God reigns. I'd like to direct our thoughts about the kingdom of God in the broadest sense possible, one that spans all of creation and all of time. If God is Lord of all, then everything through all time is subservient to him forever and ever. Has there ever been a moment in time or some place in all of creation where God was not King of kings and Lord of all? Before God created, he alone existed. For eternity past, only the three persons of the Godhead existed. The kingdom of God was simply God. But then God created. Why did God do this? Why did he create? The simple answer is that he created for his own glory. All that he created was to glorify him. Think back to the creation account. We read God's analysis of what he did throughout that account, and God saw that it was good. Creation is evidence and testimony to the goodness of God. The kingdom of God is the goodness of God. Because we were born sinners, our nature was contrary to God, his kingdom, his kingdom. And His goodness. But it was the goodness of God, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 3 5. While it is true that we have been transferred from the realm of darkness and transferred to God's kingdom, it is always profitable to remember and study the goodness of God. There is always more to learn about God, and at the same time, it is always, always useful to remind ourselves of what we already know, or what may have slipped our minds. Going back to the question of why did God create, Stephen Charnock wrote, His goodness was the cause that he made anything. Wisdom may be considered as directing, power considered as acting, but it is natural to reflect upon goodness as moving the one, wisdom, to direct, and the other, power, to act. Power was the principle of his action, wisdom the rule of his action, goodness the motive of his action. Principle and rule are awakened by the motive and subservient to the end, goodness." Creation was the first act of goodness without himself, outside of himself. When he was alone from eternity, he contented himself with himself, abounding in his own blessedness, delighting in that abundance. He was incomprehensibly rich in the possession of an unstained, intense happiness. This creation was the first flowing out of his goodness without himself." Charnak steps back and begins with God in an eternity past when considering his goodness. Think of the magnitude of that idea that forever in eternity past, God was content with himself. He abounded in his own blessedness, and he delighted in that superabundance. And our words are far inadequate to even describe this. This is where goodness begins, with God himself. And then God manifested his goodness to creation through creation itself. As we ponder and consider God's goodness, let me provide another definition. This is from a Bible dictionary and is considering his goodness in relation to creation. A perfection of his character, which he exercises toward his creatures according to their various circumstances and relations. Viewed generally, it is benevolence. As exercised with respect to the miseries of his creatures, it is mercy, pity, compassion. And in the case of impenitent sinners, impenitent sinners, long-suffering, patient. As exercised in communicating favor on the worth unworthy, it is grace. Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology writes, If it is God's attribute of majestic holiness that emphasizes his transcendence or preeminence over creation... It is God's attribute of goodness that underscores his condescension toward his creation. God's goodness is expressed through his action in and toward creation. As we live our lives in his creation, we interact constantly with his goodness to all of his creation. All right, we've dealt with a number of definitions which can numb the mind a little bit, especially reading Charnock. He's very deep. So it's the infinite trying to explain, the finite trying to explain the infinite. So let's read some scriptures, which will, these are God's words that were designed for us. I'm going to just be reading selected scriptures. Exodus 33, 19. Then he said, I will make all, this is God speaking to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then in chapter 34, 5 through 7, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Nehemiah 9, 25, there is a recounting of Israel's history. And in there we find these words, as they came into the land of Israel. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive trees, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Psalm 23, 6, a verse familiar, I'm sure, to most. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And just one more, Psalm twenty-seven thirteen. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. A.W. Pink gives a solid explanation of the goodness of God in a fallen world. He writes, The goodness of God is seen in that when a man transgressed the law of his Creator, a dispensation of unmixed wrath did not at once commence. God might well have deprived his fallen creatures of every blessing, every comfort, Every pleasure. Instead, he ushered in a regime of a mixed nature, of mercy and judgment. It is very wonderful if it be duly considered, and the more thoroughly that that regime regime is examined, the more it will appear that mercy rejoices against judgment. Notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. Even our sorrows emit of considerable alleviation, and God has given to the human mind a pliability which adapts itself to circumstances and makes the most of them. So far, we've been looking mostly at verse 13. Let's read our two verses Again, and also briefly look at verse 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As a result of God's action in verse 13, our rescue and our transfer, we have redemption, specifically the forgiveness of sins. And notice the pattern in these two verses. Verse 13 has a dark kingdom and then a good kingdom. And then it has redemption and then sin forgiven. Verse 13 moves from good to bad. Verse 14 states our new good position and states the bad position we have been forgiven from. Question 22 and 23 of our Baptist Catechism contrast the domain of darkness and the kingdom of his beloved son. What is the misery of that estate or condition wherein to man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And then the next question is, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And our section from A.W. Pink mentioned the answer is no. God could have, God did not. And the Catechism says, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. God's goodness is enjoyed by all of creation, both saved and lost. When a lost man states, if God is good, why do bad things happen? It shows the wickedness of his heart. That man needs to be reminded of all the good that God gives him daily. The breath of life, clothing for the body, food for nourishment. Wickedness is man's fault, not God's. The most glorious aspect of God's goodness is his mercy toward his elect. This is something that does not belong to the sinner, to the lost man. It is reserved only for those who flee to Christ for salvation and beg him for forgiveness. The sinner who recognizes his sin against the goodness of a loving God can rest in the arms of Christ. And then as we conclude, I want to read verse, begin reading in verse 13 through the next section, verse 20, which looks at characteristics of Christ. That will be our transition as we come to the table this morning. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we we thank you for what we learn of how you have rescued and transferred us to the kingdom of salvation. Lord, we acknowledge that we were sinners before you, and we had no inclination or desire to look to you. But in your goodness and kindness, you reached down, you changed our hearts, and breathed spiritual life into us. And Lord, we thank you for all of this. We pray that you would enable us to uh, love you and bless you with each breath that we have on this side of eternity. We pray that you be with us now as we come to the table. In Christ's name, amen.